Hey, all you cool campers and kittens. That's Genevieve. And that's Caitlin. And welcome back to Camping is Cancelled. Today, we're bringing you part two of our coverage of the preppy murder case. And if you haven't already listened to part one, definitely stop here and play that one first or you will be very, very lost. When we last left off, Robert Chambers had been arrested and charged with the second-degree murder of Jennifer Levin and was in protective custody at Rikers Island awaiting his bail hearing. Robert Chambers' bail application was scheduled for September 26, one month after the death of Jennifer Levin, and in that time, Detective Sheehan and Linda Farstein had worked tirelessly to rebuild the last five years of Robert's life to show the judge that Robert was definitely not the first-time offending altar boy that Jack Littman wanted everyone to believe. Oh man, the mountains call my number one. The day of the bail hearing, everything Linda and Sheehan had turned up with Robert's drug abuse, burglarizing, and lying to police all got swept under one big Hail Mary rosary beady rug thanks to a character letter on behalf of Robert that Jack Littman presented to Judge Bell from none other than the Archbishop of Newark, Thomas McCarrick. But this wasn't just any old Archbishop. Thomas McCarrick was actually on track to become the number one cardinal in the United States, with millions of devout Catholics following his leadership. So why on earth was he bothering to personally write a character letter for Robert Chambers? Lead prosecutor Linda Farstein wondered this exact same thing and wasted no time paying a personal visit to the archbishop himself. When pressed, McCarrick admitted knowing none of the facts of the case at all, but he stood firm in his decision to support Robert, saying that it was his faith which compelled him to do so. However, some interesting details soon came to light regarding McCarrick's relationship with the Chambers family. Remember in part one, where we talked about how Phyllis Chambers made a career out of being a private nurse for prominent New York society? Well, apparently Phyllis had cared for none other than the highly esteemed Cardinal Cook in his final days after a long battle with cancer. And while doing this, she had endeared herself to the Archdiocese of New York, so much so that Thomas McCarrick actually became the godfather of Robert Chambers even though he had never actually spent any one-on-one time with him. In the 1980s, the Catholic Church in New York City was incredibly powerful and held a great deal of political and societal influence, and this letter from the Archbishop McCarrick rattled Judge Bell so much so that he granted Robert Bale set at $150,000. And despite the media portraying him as a rich preppy, Robert's family did not have the means to pay this bail amount. And the Catholic Church came to the rescue again when an elderly Monsignor actually put his entire life savings for bail for Robert Chambers, also claiming that he was following what Jesus Christ would have him do and helping a person in need. On October 1st, the very same day that Robert was released on bail, Jack Littman held a press conference that aired all over the news in which Robert Chambers appeared in a navy blue suit and bright red tie and read the following brief statement in the same cool, calculated tone that he had delivered his admission of guilt, saying, I regret that nothing I can say or do can undo the terrible tragedy that has occurred. I am happy to be out of jail and very grateful for the support of my family, relatives, and friends. After the airing of this press conference, another Catholic Monsignor named Thomas Leonard publicly came forward and offered for Robert Chambers to live with him in the parish home in Inwood, New York, while awaiting trial. This was huge for Robert's public perception. He was no longer in an orange jumpsuit sat behind bars at Rikers Island. He was quite literally being sheltered by a holy building belonging to the Catholic Church. After all, who would need to be afraid of someone that an actual priest had staying in their own home? At this time, we're going to press the fast-forward button 33 years and pause for a bit on an interview that Robert's girlfriend of that summer, Alex Capp, gave for the AMC's 2019 documentary The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park. Adult Alex recalled that when Robert was released on bail, she had lied to her mother and said she was going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but she went to go visit Robert instead. 
Alex recalled a nagging feeling that she probably shouldn't accept Robert's invitation to go and talk alone with him in his room, but she went anyway and remembered her extremely 16-year-old self as feeling sad for this person that she'd been intimate with and believed she was in love with. And we can't fault Alex for that because at this point, she's literally a young girl. The two of them had been sitting and talking for about 30 minutes when Alex noticed a giant pile of newspapers stacked on the floor beneath Robert's desk. She recalled how in the past she and Robert would talk about wanting to be famous, and in an effort to lighten the mood with some dark humor, she said, jokingly, Boy, well, I guess you got what you wanted. You're famous. And in that moment, Alex described a weird smile, like a smirk, coming over Robert's face. And it chilled her to her core. And she finally could no longer ignore the gnawing in her gut that this was definitely not a good man. Heart racing, Alex said she slowly got up and made some excuse about needing to get home while she backed out of his room. And she ran as fast as she ever had all the way home. Alex Cap never spoke to Robert Chambers again. All right, we're back in 1986. Now, there was never any question whether or not Robert Chambers killed a Jennifer Levin in Central Park. But there was a huge question in this upcoming trial that the jury would have to decide. Whether or not Robert had the intent to kill Jennifer Levin, as the prosecution would argue, or if the jury believed Jack Littman, Jennifer's killing was a tragic accident resulting from the rough sex initiated by Jennifer Levin herself. A couple of weeks after Robert was released on bail, lead prosecutor Linda Farstein received a call from a detective who had some piping hot tea to spill about Robert. About a year ago, this detective had been investigating a felony burglary and larceny in the city. And on the fire escape of the burglarized apartment, law enforcement found a driver's license belonging to none other than one Robert Chambers. When he was called into the police station for an interview, Robert claimed he'd lost the license a while back, and whoever robbed the place must have just picked it up. The detective admitted to Linda that at the time, she had been taken with Robert's good looks, his polished prep school background, and his having no prior arrests. However, latent fingerprints had been recovered from the apartment's medicine cabinet, and Linda wasted no time having Detective Sheehan and the latent print unit compare the prints recovered from the scene of the burglary to Robert Chambers. And wouldn't you know it? Match. This revelation would be huge for the prosecution's case, and the more they kept digging into unsolved New York burglaries, They connected Robert with the man who was real bad news bears, a 20-something drug dealer named David Filiaw, and the two men had worked together to burglarize Upper East Side apartments. Filiaw was not only selling drugs, he had been arrested for raping and stabbing a 21-year-old female student at Columbia University five times after breaking into her room while she slept. Miraculously, she did survive. Whenever these two would work together, Robert would play the clean-cut and good-looking white guy of their operation, and since he had a friend from school in almost every Park Avenue building, the doorman would always let him in. He would go right up and try out doors until he found one left unlocked. David Filiaw, because he was African-American and didn't have that kind of front-door access, would wait at the bottom of the fire escape and Robert would throw down whatever he had stolen from the apartment's balcony. Robert Chambers was indicted again just a couple of weeks after being released on bail with three charges of felony burglary, and Jack Lentman knew that Robert's good boy defense was now in serious trouble. He had been planning to have his charming and handsome client take the stand during the trial, but in light of the felony charges, the prosecution would be able to absolutely pummel Robert during the cross-examination and expose his history of crime and lying to the police, which would make it all the more difficult for a jury to believe that brutalized body of Jennifer was merely the result of a tragic accident. With the trial looming closer, it was time for a media Hail Mary. On November 10, 1986, 
Jennifer's mother, Ellen Levin, said she stopped dead in her tracks in front of an airport newsstand and stared in horror. There, on the cover of New York Magazine, was none other than Robert Chambers, giving a smoldering movie star stare directly to the camera and sporting a navy blue power suit and red tie. The cover headline read, East Side Story, Robert Chambers, Jennifer Levin, and the death that shocked the city. And there was a picture of Jennifer in the front also, but it was tiny, black and white, and her face is barely visible beneath a giant pair of sunglasses. What followed inside was a full-length story that we won't bother doing a deep dive into here, but as you can imagine, it is basically a word vomit version of full-color, larger-than-life cover photo of Robert Chambers and the tiny, grainy, colorless photo of Jennifer Levin. As the months leading up to Robert's trial continued, both the defense and the prosecution were interviewing Robert and Jennifer's friends. And at some point, one of Jennifer Levin's friends apparently shared with Jack Lintman that Jennifer had kept a diary. And what's more, this friend also thought that in the diary, Jennifer might have mentioned things about Robert Chambers. In light of this information, Robert's defense said they were entitled full access to the diary and tried to subpoena it. And of course, Jack Littman couldn't waste this opportunity by just calling it a diary. So he dropped a bomb to the tabloid media that it was a sex diary, where Jennifer kept salacious details about all of her sexual encounters. Well, in actuality, the supposed sex diary was nothing more than a date book to keep track of her schedule. And it was so benign that her family said Jennifer had kept it in the kitchen next to the phone. So naturally, Jennifer's family was not so keen to just hand over one of their daughter's personal belongings to be warped and twisted around by Littman and aid in the defense of their daughter's killer. They refused to comply with the subpoena, and a very public back-and-forth legal drama ensued. Tabloid headlines literally said, Sensational new charge. Jennifer kept sex diary. And this was very intentional on Littman's part to plant seeds with the entire city and any potential jurors that Jennifer Levin was essentially asking for it and that Robert Chambers was a devout Irish Catholic who was provoked by her relentless and unwanted sexual advances. And while under normal circumstances, he would never consider hurting anyone. And this young woman, this slut, pushed him to react violently to defend himself. That headline that said, Sensational New Charge, Jennifer Kept Sex Diary, that word charge is a word that we use when we're talking about a crime. Is it a crime to have a diary where you talk about who you got it on with? No. No. So... Even if it was, who cares? That was her business. It had nothing to do with Robert Chambers. It had nothing to do with the case. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But I guess because apparently she was a woman who liked sex and potentially had multiple sexual partners, she deserved to die? No. That's what this reads. Or that. There's a phrase that I've heard come up multiple times in true crime, and it's horrible, but I love it, and it's called calling someone less dead Mm. when they can be drug, particularly women. It's applied almost exclusively to women, but when their character in a sexual sense is drug, and it happens a lot with sex workers Mm -hmm. and women who were suffering from drug abuse disorders all anything that society typically deems less than exactly then when that person is violently murdered or assaulted the perpetrator is made to look less guilty because the victim of that crime is seen as less dead because well they're not as dead as someone that society cares about more specifically somebody who's wealthy, not of color. You know, it's just a way of minimizing the value Mm -hmm. of that person's life. And that is absolutely what this attempt to dirty Jennifer's reputation Mm -hmm. was doing. So with Jack Lippman trying to make Jennifer out to be less dead because apparently she kept a quote-unquote sex diary that wasn't actually a sex diary and if she did who cares 
Linda Farstein was able to put an end to these sex diary shenanigans by having the Levin family agree to have Judge Bell review the diary himself to determine if there were any references to sex that warranted Robert's defense being entitled to it, and if not, Littman would be forced to drop it. After reviewing the diary, it was determined by Judge Bell that the so-called sex diary contained zero references to sex whatsoever. What a surprise. (laughs) But the damage had already been done to Jennifer's character from all the Jennifer kept a sex diary headlines. And at this point, it would now be impossible for any potential jurors to hear the name Jennifer Levin and not associate it with sex diary or rough sex, which is precisely what Jack Lippman had intended. And I will also say that I think that this was made even more extreme because on the flip side, what Robert's defense was doing was putting him high up on a pedestal with the Catholic Church, who is also very big on the on women behaving and appearing a certain way and presenting a certain way in society and people who already had that mindset who were being told by the Catholic Church to get on team Robert Chambers are going to be even more likely to empathize with him and all the more likely to see Jennifer as the whore side of the Madonna whore complex because they were being encouraged to look and pay attention to this case. And it really is darkly brilliant on behalf of Robert's defense team because they knew very much what they were doing. Even though I can pretty much guarantee you that Robert Chambers had probably never actually read a Bible in his life. And as all this was going on, Activists and the Guardian Angels picketed and marched, holding justice for Jennifer signs outside of the courthouse for months leading up to the trial in a show of support for Jennifer. And this was able to give her family some encouragement, at least, that not everyone in the city was falling for this whole blame the victim campaign. While there was no question that Robert Chambers was the ones whose actions resulted in Jennifer's death, In prepping for the trial, the prosecution could not find one single medical examiner who could definitely say what Jennifer's official cause of death was, which meant it was up to the prosecution to suggest something to the jury as the murder weapon that matched the physical evidence collected from the crime scene as well as the markings on Jennifer's body. And as it happened, this piece of evidence had been with Jennifer the whole time her denim jacket, which she is wearing in a photograph taken with friends the same night of the murder at Dorian's, and was also found completely removed and lying next to her body at the crime scene, with multiple visible splatters of blood as well as saliva on it. These blood splatters were especially significant because when Jennifer's body was discovered, The only place that she had blood on her body was found to be coming from her mouth. If the prosecution could connect the blood on the jacket as belonging exclusively to Jennifer, they could make an incredibly strong case that after punching Jennifer so hard in the face that he broke his hand, Robert Chambers had placed the jacket over Jennifer's mouth and throat and applied repeated prolonged force by crushing the jacket up and down and having to readjust and press it down again and again as she struggled until she was dead. And the prosecution thought this would be a slam dunk, especially because they had a new forensic evidence tactic to bring to the table that in 1987 unbelievably had never before been used in a criminal courtroom in the United States. DNA. Detective Sheehan hand-delivered this denim jacket to the FBI Academy in Quantico for an in-depth DNA analysis, and after six long months of waiting, the preliminary test results came back as the blood and saliva on the jacket being a full match for Jennifer Levin. But 
When this groundbreaking DNA evidence was presented by Linda Farstein to Judge Bell in preliminary trial hearings, the judge denied the prosecution being able to use it in the courtroom as evidence, saying that because the science was so new, he didn't feel that it could be trusted. This was a devastating blow to the prosecution because even though they could still mention the presence of the jacket at the crime scene and their belief in the role that it might have played, they no longer had the weight of hard DNA evidence that could convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the denim jacket was in fact the murder weapon. So as frustrating as it was to not be able to use DNA, there was still a key piece of evidence that could prove there was intention on part of Robert Chambers to end Jennifer Levin's life, her neck. In the lead-up to the trial, the rough sex defense and the the blame-the-victim defense was everywhere. But once crime scene photos surfaced of Jennifer's neck, absolutely covered in horrific, violent bruises, it was impossible to ignore that something wasn't adding up with Robert's claim he had acted in one swift motion with his arm. Every expert that the prosecution consulted agreed that the marks on Jennifer's neck were not from one act of force, but were the result of repeated acts of force and prolonged pressure that would have had to be applied to her neck for at least four full minutes to cause her death after she had already become limp and lost consciousness. And that was intentional. No shit. Four full minutes. Four and full it minutes. May have been slightly less than that or more than that, give or take, but that is a long time. That's a full song, like a good, like a good chunk of a song. He had multiple seconds to sit there and be like, oh, stop, stop, stop. And instead, he continued, continued, continued. When I was researching stuff for this case, one of the things I read was that I'm definitely on an FBI list now from (laughs) all of the, how long does it take for someone to die when you're strangling them? searches that I made on Google but when you are attempting to strangle someone at any point within that three to four minutes you can release pressure from their neck and within 10 seconds they most likely will regain consciousness they may be injured or have brain damage but they will not be dead correct And he had plenty of opportunity to realize she was, if, if, quote unquote, she had actually assaulted him and he had no choice but to defend himself, but didn't actually want to hurt her, then he should have realized she is no longer moving. I can stop holding her down. But he never did that. It also doesn't track with the one failed swoop over his head because how did he get how did she get over his head and then he started to choke her right oh yeah because wasn't one of his hands uh it was caught up in some panties still uh somehow tied with her tiny tiny underwear okay robert i just like despite lack of dna evidence i'm not good at math but two plus two equals four (laughs) i just don't get it it seems impossible to deny intentionality but as we will go on to see when you have a lot of smart people talking endlessly in a courtroom to a very tired and frustrated jury you can really muddle anything beyond the point of common sense i wonder how many of them were flat earthers and that was also intentional In any murder trial, the prosecution bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt to secure conviction. And while that doesn't actually have to include a motive, it certainly helps in making all of the pieces fit. And there's maybe only one thing Jack Littman has said this entire time that we happen to agree with. People don't just kill people for no reason whatsoever. There's always an energy shift in the seconds before an interaction turns deadly, and we think it's natural as human beings to want to understand why. If for no other reason, then we want to reassure ourselves that we're not in danger of the shift ever happening in our own interactions. And in this case, 
the only why Robert Chambers ever gave was absolute bullshit. So, what really happened between him and Jennifer? Based on the facts of the case and the evidence presented at the crime scene, Linda and Detective Sheehan had a few different ideas for what possibly could have gone down that night. And since none of these have ever been confirmed for sure, you'll have to decide for yourself what you think. Now, we know that Jennifer and Robert went to Central Park that night to do something they had already done together, which was to have sex. And at the crime scene, a pair of white underwear presumed to be Jennifer's was found abandoned on the grass a few yards away from her body. Linda believed that where the underwear was found was where the two of them had initially sat down to do whatever they were going to do sexually, and that was when a conflict started. One, Jennifer could have begun lecturing Robert again about doing drugs, which could have made him frustrated and angry. Two, Robert may have tried to perform sexually and couldn't. She could have said something or made fun of him and he got angry. Or three, and this is the one that carries the most weight for us personally. After Jennifer had removed her underwear, she stepped off to pee in some bushes. And when she returned, she caught Robert rifling through her purse, which definitely tracks considering everything we know about his stealing to fuel his drug addiction by now. Like any normal person who thinks they're with someone who is a friend that they can trust, Jennifer would have been like, Robert, seriously? She likely would have threatened to go back to Dorian's and tell everyone. And after his embarrassing interaction with Alex Cap shortly before, this would have been the final straw for Robert. He would have grabbed Jennifer and attempted to stop her. And from here, things turned deadly. This theory was supported by something else unique about the crime scene, and that was the manner in which the contents of Jennifer's purse were strewn in a line from where her underwear was found to where her body lay. And furthermore, according to Detective Sheehan, the manner she was left, with her clothing lifted and legs positioned apart, would make it appear to the untrained eye that she had been the victim of a rape, when in reality, there had been no sex at all, and Robert Chambers thought he was being really clever. In prepping for the trial, both the prosecution and defense were seeking expert witnesses whose testimonies could align with their separate arguments on ligature strangulation, asphyxial deaths, and chokeholds. And while it's no secret that in a criminal trial, expert witnesses can be found to argue just about anything and seem legit, it's worth noting that Jack Littman initially approached forensic pathologist and leading expert Dr. Warner Spitz to work on behalf of Robert's defense. But after Dr. Spitz spent time examining the evidence, he actually refused to work on behalf of Robert Chambers' defense and became the lead expert witness for the prosecution because he agreed with their theory that Robert had used Jennifer's own jacket to strangle her. The lead expert for Robert's defense ended up being a man named Dr. Ronald Kornblum, who at the time had written extensively about police chokeholds, and they planned to use him to corroborate Robert's version of events that he'd wrapped one free arm around Jennifer's neck and flipped her over his shoulder onto the ground and accidentally killed her. So I guess Robert used a quote-unquote police chokehold? Okay... Dr. Ronald Kornblum sounds like a fucking clue character for one, so... It really does. Jury selection dragged on for months, and the judge decided to hold individual interviews with each potential juror because the intense media coverage of this case everywhere in the city made it next to impossible to find fair and impartial jurors. Apparently, during the jury selection process... One young woman who was being interviewed as a potential juror came in, saw Robert sitting next to his lawyer, and when asked by the judge if she had any impressions of Robert, she said, he's really much better looking in person. Maybe it's a good thing she wasn't selected. Yeah. Maybe an IQ testing should be taken before selecting jurors. Literally everyone has the hots for Robert Chambers. He like, has killer eyes. His does. eyes are disgusting. <laughs> he does have the dead killer eyes. And again, 
the question wasn't whether or not he killed her. It wasn't like he was shouting from the rooftops, I'm innocent and I'm being framed. He did. It's like, I killed her and I don't care. Exactly. Find me hot. And everyone was like, okay. The ick factor is strong. Ugh. When the pool of 500 potential jurors were finally narrowed down to 12, all of the drama and momentum that had been building for nearly two years was finally going to culminate in a trial, and the notoriety that this case had developed could not be understated. Everyone was desperate to know what really happened between Robert and Jennifer on the night of August 26. Media swarmed the courthouse, filling the streets and peering down from rooftops, and every day of the proceedings were agonizing for the Levin family. On October 21, 1987, the trial finally began, and Jennifer's family wept in the courtroom as Linda Farstein placed a giant photo of the young woman directly in front of the jury that had been taken with friends just hours before her murder. And in her opening remarks, Linda did everything she could to make Jennifer Levin come alive as a loving daughter, great student, and a friend who was living a vibrant and happy life before Robert Chambers took it all away from her. And chillingly, she implored the jury that over the course of this trial to not make the same mistake that Jennifer had in trusting Robert Chambers. That's good. I like oh, that. Yeah. Ooh, got a little, little shiver hearing Ooh, that. Some goosey bumps. The first witness the prosecution called was none other than a friend from the very beginning, Pat Riley the cyclist who found Jennifer's body in Central Park. Yay, Pat. Yay. Oh, yes. This is something that we got to throw in real quick. So Pat Riley agreed to testify on behalf of the prosecution on the stipulation that she did not want any media coverage. She wanted to be whisked in and out the back. She didn't want to have to look at anybody, do anything except be in the courtroom, be done. So they took her in through the back, put her on an elevator, and that elevator was full of Robert Chambers' defense team and the prick himself. And the prick himself. And she was standing right beside him. I can't imagine that this was not very intentional on the part of Jack Lippman because how unsettling would that be for them to put you on an elevator with the killer when they know you're going to testify against him and that had to be some sort of like intimidation honestly move. i just want to know what was going through robert's sick mind because he oh, yeah. he had to have recognized her like yeah, when he was right. sitting on his little booty as she stumbled upon jennifer like, I just want to know what he was thinking. He was probably thinking nothing but trying to look at his reflection in the ceiling Ugh. of the elevator. You're not wrong. But good for Pat because yeah, she absolutely. still went and did the thing anyway. So, on cross-examination, Jack Littman absolutely pummeled poor Pat, questioning her knowledge of the distance she had been from Jennifer's body and her ability to visualize measurements and feet. Like saying, how can you possibly know you were X amount of feet from her body? For no other reason than to make her to appear unreliable to the jury. Littman also raked the detectives and police officers who assessed Jennifer Levin's crime scene over the coals, accusing them of being sloppy and botching the scene, and challenged everything that Detective Sheehan testified under oath to witnessing at the scene to diminish his credibility. He did everything in his power to maintain control of the courtroom, and years later, an interviewed juror remembered that it was impossible for everyone to not be impressed by his confidence and charisma. As the trial progressed, it continued to be at the top of the news every single night in the front page of every paper, and media would have to part like a sea to let the legal teams through the courthouse daily. On day nine of the trial, Linda placed a few of Jennifer Levin's friends on the stand to testify as she tried to paint an accurate picture of the events at Dorian's Red Hand the night of the murder, and also hoped to show the jury with stories from her friends that Jennifer was not the sex-obsessed and loose young woman that Littman had been feeding to the media. However, this proved to be a double-edged sword because under cross-examination, Littman was able to dig out answers from Jennifer's friends 
to support his claim that she was a sexually aggressive young woman with multiple sexual partners. That pisses me off. Because who cares? Who cares? Exactly. Who cares? And obviously we weren't there when all of this was happening, but I, as much as I am team Linda in this case, I do disagree with what she did here by using Jennifer's friends to make a case. Oh, but she was just a normal person because normal people can have multiple sexual partners and enjoy sex that was not anyone's business she almost just played into Littman's narrative of jennifer and it's you're absolutely right it's just fueling that perception that wanting sex was a good motive for her death right and that it makes somebody lesser and dirty and instead of using jennifer's friends to say oh, she wasn't actually sex-obsessed. I think she should have used her friends to say, yeah, she hooked up with multiple people, but who cares? She was so much more than just that. She had multiple sexual partners like everyone in their friend group did because that was what they did. She was a loving friend, an honest person, a hard worker, all of those things. And yeah, so it's just, it's just frustrating to listen to the narrative that continuously was played. Absolutely. It really was a double-edged sword. According to her friends and family who were present in the courtroom, everything was choreographed by Jack Littman to twist everything that was said about Jennifer into a denigration of her character and memory for no other reason than that she had been open with her friends about liking sex and having multiple sexual partners. Despite the horror of having to sit through the slander of her daughter's memory, Ellen Levin did not miss a single day of the court proceedings and said that by showing up every day, this was the last piece of business she knew she had to do for her daughter. Jurors and media recalled that for the duration of the trial, Robert Chambers sat perfectly still and stared vacantly ahead. No tears and no reaction whatsoever. His mother and father were there, and his mother Phyllis was often seen in footage clutching Jack Lippman's arm as they entered and left the courthouse. And perhaps most interesting... Robert's new girlfriend was also there every single day, a beautiful young woman named Sean Covell. And whether their relationship was legitimate or a publicity stunt to make Robert appear safe, Sean seemed completely smitten with Robert, and her presence definitely softened the overall image of Robert Chambers. Members of the Catholic clergy also sat in the courtroom on the side of Robert's supporters. That's also not a good look, Catholic Church, but they have not been a good look this entire time. And by entire time, I mean since they were founded. But it was definitely another very intentional move on the part of Robert's defense to make him look like a young, clean, and upstanding Catholic boy, while Jennifer was the slut. Lippman played Robert's videotape police interview in the courtroom and used his version of events to try and convince the jury that clearly Jennifer had been the aggressor. She wanted the sex. He wasn't interested. She was the one to blame. As all this went on, the word was that Littman was preparing Robert to take the stand, which almost never happens in a murder trial, and Linda Farstein was counting on this so she could finally expose Robert's sociopathy, his ability to lie, and his history of felony crime. But when Littman became aware of the sheer number of provable crimes that Chambers had committed and that the prosecution intended to bring up during cross-examination, he held Robert back from the stand. And without the ability to ask Robert questions under oath, the prosecution could no longer even bring them up in the courtroom. On day 23 of the trial, Linda Farstein's medical examiner presented the results of Jennifer's autopsy. They presented that her cause of death had been asphyxial, but exactly how that happened was forced to be left much more open to interpretation, especially without the prosecution being allowed to present the DNA evidence from Jennifer's denim jacket 
as blood connected to the blood on Jennifer's mouth. Because of a lack of hard evidence presented as to what exactly caused her asphyxiation, Jack Littman used his own expert witnesses to throw weight behind Robert's claims that the marks on Jennifer's neck and cause of death had been from a single pull of Robert's arm when he briefly put her in a police chokehold to defend himself. He called up expert witness after expert witness and got them to do so much back-and-forth scientific testimony jargon that the jury was thoroughly overwhelmed and muddled by the sheer volume of it all, and this was exactly what he intended. After all these shenanigans, the air between Jack Littman and Linda Farstein in the courtroom was openly thick with hostility, and there were so many sidebars that the jurors recalled feeling like they were going crazy with how painful this trial had become. Finally, on day 46, it was time for closing arguments. According to Robert's defense, it was an accident, and Jennifer shouldn't have been such a slut or she probably would be alive today. According to the prosecution, regardless of whatever transpired between Robert and Jennifer in the hours and minutes leading up to their fateful encounter at Central Park, in the span of three to five minutes, Robert Chambers formed and executed the intent to kill Jennifer Levin by applying repeated immense force to her neck without relief. On March 17, 1988, the jury was sequestered and began deliberations. After five days of deliberations, the jury still could not decide if Robert had intended to kill Jennifer or if it was a tragic accident, and they could not reach a decision on whether or not he was guilty of the charge of second-degree murder. Eight jurors said yes, four jurors said no, and they were in a deadlock. By day nine of deliberations, the stress among jurors had amounted to so much so that one juror faked a heart attack to be excused, People were breaking down in tears, and one juror apparently tried to barricade himself in a refrigerator because another juror found him so annoying that he had threatened to kill him. At this point, the defense was under immense pressure to come up with a plea so this grueling ordeal could finally be over. Littman proposed that Robert would plead guilty to manslaughter in the first degree, which did not require intent. But Robert would have to admit that he alone had caused the death of Jennifer Levin. If the Levins did not accept this plea bargain, Robert would be out again until the next trial, and that whole process could take another two whole years. On March 25, 1988, a massive press conference was held with everyone involved in the trial present, and Manhattan District Attorney declared that he could not convict Chambers under circumstantial evidence, and that the plea agreement was in the best interests of justice. Robert Chambers pleaded guilty to the charges of first-degree manslaughter and was sentenced on April 15th to 5 to 15 years in prison. At this same press conference, he gave a brief statement in a flat, monotone voice saying he never wanted any of this to happen to anybody and that Jennifer's name would live on, not through memories, but by her family and her feelings. Shut up, Robert. Her name will live on, not through memories but by her family and her feelings what does that even mean i wish that ellen and steven could have been given like 60 seconds in a room alone with robert and it would be like whatever happens you have 60 seconds go have fun that would be the dream that would be a one mississippi we are not advocating for violence. No. We would just say we would... No, they could have a nice talk. Yeah, yeah. Nice chit-chat. They could show him pictures of Jennifer as a baby. They could, uh... You know, explain to him just how she will be living through their memories. Exactly. Mm. And then, in a final insult to the Levin family, Robert Chambers was permitted by the judge to spend the night at home with his mother before surrendering himself to begin his sentence. Would have been nice if Jennifer could have had one more night with her mother before she was, you know, murdered. The following morning, Robert was led from his apartment in a bulletproof vest by Detective Sheehan through a sea of media to the Department of Corrections to begin serving his time. As he was escorted into his cell, Robert Chambers threw up before turning around and saying to Detective Sheehan, quote, I'll never get used to the smell. Unquote. Well, you better. I hope he never got used to the smell. <laughs> and I hope his cellmate 
takes a giant dump every morning in the toilet clogs. So the smell just lingers. How come I'm subjected to the punishment of Robert Chambers every morning when my husband boards the toot toot train and takes a massive shit (laughs) and it wafts into the bedroom? Sorry. Oh, we just lost a subscriber. That was (laughs) Jacob Wilhelm. We didn't have to name him. And while it was somewhat of an anticlimactic legal ending, this might have been the end of all the media attention surrounding this case. But the press was about to be handed one more bombshell. On May 15, 1988, one of the Upper East Side girls who hung around with Robert Chambers contacted a reporter from the wildly popular show A Current Affair and told him that there was a videotape of Robert that they were going to want to see. That very same night, A Current Affair released a special episode of the tape, and all hell broke loose. The tape of Robert Chambers had been taken on December 17, 1987, between when he was out on bail and the start of his murder trial. In the tape, Robert appears to be hanging out in someone's bedroom with Sean Covell and a bunch of other attractive young women who are all dancing around in their underwear. And I am no expert, but they all look pretty inebriated. One of the young women is only wearing lingerie and at one point is literally rubbing her butt all against the back of Robert's neck while he sits on the floor. Uh, Insert massive barf emoji. And while they're all sitting there, Robert picks up a doll, turns around and looks into the camera while he twists the doll's head around and says in a disgusting, creepy voice, My name is... Then the doll's head pops off, and he goes, Oops, I think I killed her. What the hell? There is no way that if this tape had surfaced before the trial began, that it would not have had an effect on the verdict. While it obviously didn't prove anything, it certainly showed the entire world who Robert Chambers really was. The kind of person who would joke about killing someone when he has literally been charged with killing someone and is awaiting his own murder trial. In the years that followed, Robert Chambers did not reform in prison. He got busted for drugs and ended up serving the full 15-year sentence, and after his release in 2003, was barely out for a year before he got arrested for driving with a suspended license and having cocaine and heroin in his car, and for this was sentenced to 100 days in prison. In 2007, he and the very same girlfriend from way back when the trial was happening, Sean Covell, were busted for selling cocaine out of his apartment. Apparently, Sean was in such a terrible state of drug abuse disorder when the two of them were arrested that the judge actually took pity on Sean and instead of giving her prison time, sent her directly to rehab. Robert Chambers received 19 more years in prison, almost four times as much time as his minimum sentence had been for killing Jennifer Levin. Yay for the justice system. We care more about drugs than we do human life. He is currently serving his time at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in upstate New York, and the earliest possible date for his release is 2024. Now, remember way back at the beginning of the trial proceedings when a Catholic Church archbishop named Theodore McCarrick wrote Robert Chambers a glowing character letter as part of his bail application? A letter that rattled the judge so much he was motivated to grant Robert bail? Well, in 2018, that one and same archbishop, who had since become Cardinal McCarrick, one of the most powerful cardinals in the States, was suspended from his duties after 
accusations that he was a sexual abuser of young altar boys. And those accusations were ultimately found to be credible and substantiated. So that's delightful. When the trial was finally over, Ellen Levin was contacted by Attorney General Robert Abrams, and Abrams sent her a letter about a bill he was working on called the Rape Shield Bill, which stated that a crime victim's sexual past could not be brought up into court. So Ellen called up the Attorney General and said, Yep, I like what you're doing with this bill, but... Speaking from personal experience and what happened to my daughter, what about deceased victims? They should never have their sexual past introduced in a case where it bears no relevance. The attorney general completely agreed and added Ellen's suggestion to the bill, and together the two of them formed a lobby group called Justice for All. And over the next decade, they passed 13 pieces of legislation in Albany, New York, to protect and advocate for victims of violent crime. To us, literally existing and somehow carrying on after the horrible murder of your own child and sister is an astounding accomplishment in and of itself. But the fact that Ellen Levin went on to use this horrific thing that happened to her family to become an advocate for victims is just incredible. And according to Ellen, all she was able to accomplish wasn't just her. It was her and Jen together. And there you have it. That brings us to the conclusion of the preppy murder case. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you come back next week where we will be bringing you the truly horrible story of none other than the co-ed serial killer, Edmund Kemper. You can follow us on Instagram at Camping is Canceled. Feel free to send us an email if there are any particular cases you'd like to hear covered. You can go ahead and drop us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you would like to support our work and get some nice little perks, you can find us on Patreon as Camping is Cancelled. Special thank you to the beautiful and super smart Chris English, an amazing English teacher and my high school theater director, for being our first ever Patreon subscriber. Thank you so much, Chris. Until next time, Camping is Cancelled. Bye! Bye!